0: Father, we come this morning as your people united in Christ, giving you thanks for the many gifts that you have given us, for the many blessings that we have received through your right hand. We come praying like Jesus prayed that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth, even now as it is in heaven in so many ways, both in our own lives and the lives of the world around us. We're in desperate need of your kingdom to come, for things to work out here and now, the way that you desire, the way that you built the world to work. We pray that your spirit would continue to do that powerful work of bringing your kingdom, that we would participate we're invited and able. And we pray that your spirit would also continue to speak to us. Help us to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear um, what he is communicating to us this morning, what you would have us hear and learn and act on, that we might find life and life abundant through your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning good to see everyone. If you have a Bible, uh, flip with me to John chapter 6. John 6 is where we'll be this morning as we continue on in our sermon series, uh, the seven signs in John's gospel. We are now at sign number four. These signs will take us all the way up till Easter, um, which if you are not aware is coming pretty soon on April 1st. Uh, So it doesn't get much better than that. April Fool's Day, uh, we will celebrate Jesus' resurrection. I want to remind you all that Easter is the most pregnant with opportunities of church dates in our calendar. Um, the ability to evangelize and to, to bring a friend or a visitor to church, um, is, there's nothing really that compares to it uh, like the Easter holiday. Um, so there seems to be this pool that people have, this sense of the importance of Easter. And so even people who are unchurched, uh, who don't attend regularly, Feel like it's important to be somewhere on Easter, and so I uh, encourage us to tap into that. We want to make April first a big day, a big invite day, um, and get as many people here uh, as possible. John six this morning, um, the fourth sign that John gives us for us to see who Jesus is, that we might have faith in Him, and that through that faith we might receive His life. Anybody here this morning needs some good news. Yes, this is what you're going to get this morning. If you don't, you came to the wrong place. I'm sorry. But we're getting some good news this morning about what's possible in Jesus, about what has happened when God in Christ has come to the world, and about the man who is indeed himself the bread of life, come to feed our hungry souls. John 6, we pick it up in verse 1. This is a story, actually, that. Um, I don't know if you're much like me in this sense, but sometimes there are stories in the Bible or text in the Bible that I'm aware of and familiar with, but have never really meant much to me. This is one of those stories for me. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, this is one of those stories that I've kind of always known, but have kind of glanced over. I've taught the Gospels, high school, university, and, and church settings, and it's never really had a hold on my heart. Um, I know that's probably not true for you. All of Scripture fascinates you at all times. But I really enjoyed the past week or so um, getting to dig into this text and and finding it very meaningful. And so I think we have some, some good news this morning. John 6, verse 1 reads like this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up onto the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Notice just, again, the humanity of this story. Jesus sees a large crowd. They're most likely coming because of signs he's performed, which, no, Jesus is not interested in. He has tried to avoid these large crowds seeking simply party tricks for most of the gospel. But he sees this large crowd. His first thought, what do you ask? How are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to meet their needs? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He asked Philip Philip answered in verse seven, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little." This is a huge sum of money. So Denarius was about what you'd earn in a year if you were a day laborer in the first century. This is 200 of them. Philip pulls out his calculator. And he starts doing the math, and there's a lot of zeros after a lot of zeros after a lot of zeros. And even then he says, and that's for like a snack. I mean, that's not really to to satisfy most people. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, kind of was overhearing this conversation. He said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. So he's kind of onto the right track. Instead of looking at what they don't have, he says, well, here's what we do have among us. We've got five loaves of bread two little sardines, most likely what these fish were. But then as he says it out loud, he starts to feel kind of silly. So he goes back to where Philip was. He says, but what are they for so many people? Jesus likes where he's going though. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there is much grass in that place that will come back and be significant for us. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Now, this is just the men. Um, if you add the women and children who are most likely there, um, this number balloons well past 5,000 in terms of people who are needing to be fed. We're thinking at least 10,000, perhaps up to twelve, fifteen thousand. 15,000. I mean, this is like a small arena forming around Jesus needing food. This like some of our bigger services— um, And so, so the men sat down. You got 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Interestingly enough, this is Jesus' first hands-on miracle in the Gospel of John. Jesus himself is distributing this food to people, going around, saying, how much would you like? Go ahead, take some, eat. The other miracles have been kind of a little bit further distance. Jesus turns the water into wine, but not by touching it or doing anything magical with it. It just goes that route on its way to the headmaster of the wedding in John 2. The young official, he heals from a distance with just his words. And the paralytic in the um, last sign that we saw in John 5 is healed again with just commands from Jesus. But he actually reaches into the basket and walks around to these thousands of people handing out the food. Verse 12 When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, if you were like an ancient Jew in the first century and you knew these stories inside and out, you immediately are going to see some echoes from various places in the Old Testament. Um, most likely what first comes to your mind is a story found in 2 Kings chapter 4 about Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a small little story there at the end of the chapter where Elijah has about 100 men in front of him. A similar situation occurs. There's a man. He has some food, but not very much. And Elisha says, Let's just pass it out. And they pass it out. Everyone ate, and there's even some left over after the meal. Elisha is one of Israel's top prophets. And this is most likely why the people immediately see Jesus as a prophet. This is a prophet, a prophet better than the prophets of old, who has come into the world. Jesus kind of uh, looks at the situation and sees they're trying to try to make me king by force. If you're familiar with Jesus, that's not the way his kingdom works. Jesus is already king, and he's already doing things as he wants to do them as king. Um, The people, the mob mentality, and their ideas about what a king should or shouldn't be um, are often not the same that Jesus has here. Now, the, the sign that we're given here, John again gives us these signs, these miracles, to point us to some deep, a substantial, universal truth. The first one that pops out to me here, and the most significant to me, is that Jesus, in this miracle, in this sign, he acts out a rebuke to one of the most common problems humans have. Humanity has lots of conditions. We have lots of weird quirks we've picked up along the way. We have lots of places where our vision kind of gets hemmed in and we can only see a few things. I'm allergic to mosquitoes. <laughs> There's a lot of bugs these days. To ladybug. <laughs> I love it. One of the, the biggest human conditions, besides being attacked by ladybugs, is this, this viewpoint that we have, this sense of emptiness. Humanity kind of carries around with it at various times and to various degrees this sense of emptiness, both spiritual emptiness, sometimes relational emptiness, and, and sure enough, physical emptiness. And so what has happened throughout history is that humankind has started to develop a paradigm or lens through which they view the world. We might call it a paradigm of scarcity or of insufficiency. We look around the world and we see limited resources, there's only so much oil, there's only so much money, there's only so much land, and we've got to compete for it. If called, we have to withhold it from other people. If it gets to that point, we have to use force to take it or to protect it. This sense of scarcity that there's not enough in the world is largely behind probably most of our systemic sins as humanity. There are personal sins that we engage in, and then there are sins of the systems the governments or the cultures that we're a part of. I think most of our bigger, more uh, insidious, systemic sins come from this kind of idea. There's just not enough for everybody. And so I've got to grab my own and keep it my own and hoard it. We, we don't look around at the world and see an abundance of gifts. We don't look around and go, wow, we are blessed with a lot. And there's probably more where that came from. We look around at the world, and we imagine that the world history is a zero-sum game, which is to say that there's no leftovers. When you add it all up, there's only a certain amount. There's a pie, and you can cut it in as many slices as you want, but that's all that there is, and you've got to work to get your piece of the pie. You can see this in all kinds of ways. Um, You know, it's been much uh, commented on that, Americans seem to consume many of the resources of our world uh, disproportionately to the population of the world. Um, this is just one kind of example of this. We see people around the world, then we see five loaves and two fish, and we say, all right, we're going to have three loaves and two fish. We're going to need the protein, we're on a paleo diet. You can have a little bit of carbs. The rest of you can split up these, these two loaves here. One way of saying it is is we kind of view the universe as a closed system. And so what we have is all that we have to deal with. When we make calculations, when we plan on things, when we have expectations for things, we do it with simply what's in front of us. There's no sense that something beyond our universe could come and change things, could come and miraculously open up doors that we didn't even know were there. We operate with this kind of closed system. And this is something that Jesus speaks against so much throughout his ministry. In fact, if I had to kind of label it in this way, I would say, this is probably the most confusing thing to Jesus about human beings, is that they have this intense worry that there's not enough for them. We just went through the Sermon on the Mount not too long ago. A significant portion of the Sermon on the Mount deals with this, and Jesus' message is, "Stop worrying." He doesn't seem to understand. He goes, why are you you worrying about clothes and food and money? He goes, don't you know who your father is? Don't you know that he's infinite? The resources that you see in front of you are not the only resources in the universe. From the father, there are limitless, infinite resources. He says there's examples all around the world for us to see. Things that don't work, things that don't toil, things that don't store things. And yet the Father blesses them abundantly. Jesus seems to think you and I are just looking at the world wrongly. We're making the wrong calculations. when We look out of the world and don't see enough for us or for other people. When we see the need to compete, when we get down and depressed, and we think maybe there's not enough love for me, maybe there's not enough money for me and my family, Maybe there's not enough safety for me. Maybe I don't have enough space. And so I need to look out and compete and kind of take my own and and hoard it and protect it tightly. I can't be too generous with things. There's only so much time that comes around. I can't spend it all doing charity work and spend some of it, you know, just enjoying myself and kind of spending and splurging on myself. Jesus is constantly working against this. And the fourth sign here, the feeding of the 5,000, I think is a lived-out rebuke to this mindset, to this this problematic way of seeing the world. Jesus, hands-on, reaches into these baskets where there are theoretically only five fish and two, or five loaves and two fish. But he's not reaching in, it seems, to a finite basket. He reaches in, and more is available much more than just what seemingly was there. Indeed, like a super abundance of things, so much so that there's even some left over once everybody has eaten to their full. In Jesus, the infinite has become finite. God has interfaced, has connected with the world in a powerful way such that his presence now explodes all the things we thought were possible. And this is why... Anytime you take out a calculator like Philip did and you start to do the calculations with what you can see in front of you and what you can experience around you, you're always going to end up short to a faithful obedience to Jesus. or preparation, or planning, or best wisdom just doesn't fly. It leaves us limited and scared and in a seeming fight with other people. We read in our our scripture reading today from 1 Corinthians, God's wisdom is not like our wisdom. His power is not like our power. Jesus' wisdom is that life comes through dying. I don't think any of us would naturally be like, let's do that. Why don't we just die and let's hope for the best? His power comes through crucifixion. You can lead through weakness. His wisdom confounds our wisdom. And so when we pull out the calculations of what we think is possible, I'm telling you that the math will never add up. Like Philip, he sees just the five loaves and the two fish, and he says, this is not going to work. Jesus says, you don't know what I'm working with. Are you unaware? I'm going to keep reaching this basket, but I'm never going to reach a limit. I'm never going to reach a bottom. Because I'm infinite. I'm limitless. The sign here is that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's a community, a place of generosity, abundant generosity. When God's reigning, there's more than enough. Jesus here and elsewhere says that scarcity, this paradigm of scarcity and insufficiency, is and always was a lie. It was short-sightedness on the part of humanity that assumed nothing else was in play than what we have in front of us, what we can realistically or pragmatically plan on. This has so many ramifications for our lives, for our communities, even for our church. I think a lot of the ways that we come up short as individual Christians is because we we just don't have an infinite imagination. And so Jesus says, give up your life, and that way you'll find it. And we even know that it kind of worked that way for Jesus. And, And most of us would probably intellectually be like, yeah, I'm on board. But then when it comes a time to perhaps put ourselves in danger or for our families perhaps to be in a little bit of danger for us to to sacrifice ourselves even perhaps actually lose our lives our heart immediately starts beating fast because while our mind might know there's a thing called resurrection when we do the calculations we think I'm just being killed if I'm irresponsible, perhaps my family gets in trouble because of this. And God in his wisdom and power, Jesus the whole time is going, Do you not, have you not heard of this thing called resurrection? Eternal life? Death is only a real limit. It's only a stopping thing. If you don't realize that beyond death is something much more powerful. We look at the amount of money that perhaps we have in our bank account. At highest, you know, Lindsay and I get to like 150 dollars. And we look at all the needs in the world and we think I don't have enough. We don't have enough. And if I if I don't save a bunch, one day it's gonna come a famine. I'll get fired and opportunities wanna rise for me and we'll just be irresponsible losers. Under a bridge, and Jesus goes, "No, be generous. Give away your stuff." He says, "Why do you even, storage sheds?" Jesus is famous for attacking storage sheds, right? He's like, "What kind of logic is this? That you'd actually build another building just to store your own stuff in a world where people are starving and dying all the time?" Well, it's a logic of scarcity. We need to keep it. We need to protect it. There one day will be a day when it's not there for us. And so it stops us from being perhaps fully generous, perhaps obeying the leading of the Spirit when we feel called to do something, but then we do the calculations and we go, well, that's not realistic for me. That's just not pragmatic for me and my family. Well, it's because you're using the wrong calculator. You're doing the math of the world while following and expecting the blessings of the infinite, the limitless. Jesus is called the Word in John's Gospel. You could perhaps replace this for our purposes with the infinite. In the beginning was the infinite, and the infinite was with God. The infinite was God. You skip down a bit from verse 1 to to verse 14. And the infinite became flesh, or the infinite became human. The infinite became finite and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory or beauty, the beauty of the infinite, the miraculous power of the limitless. We've seen his glory, the glory only of that, from the Father's right hand. Then John says, in his fullness, in his infiniteness, we received blessing upon blessing, grace after grace. Perhaps sometimes we doubt God's love for us. And it's because you don't realize what kind of love God is working with. This infinite love, this unconditional love. I don't think Jesus is mad when we doubt his love for us. I think he's just confused. Like, why would you think that you're so special that you can stop up the flow of my infinite love? No, it's coming, and it's coming no matter what you think or experience. Grace upon grace for all of us. Jesus is the infinite made finite. He's the connecting point between heaven and earth, between God and creation. If you've got an hourglass, right, you've got these two pieces, and the sand can kind of trickle down from the top to the bottom. Let's say the top is heaven or the infinite. The bottom is the finite or, or world. And you've got one point at which they meet, and they can transfer. This point is Jesus. By placing our faith in Jesus, we are able to access, able to receive gifts from heaven, from God. But in, in that analogy, to be more correct, you'd probably need to take the top of that hourglass and make it a little bit bigger, like maybe the size of this room, perhaps. Even then, you're like, no, that's too small, probably. You'd make it like the size of the state. You're like, well, and it's still kind of limited there, in size of the, the, the universe. It would be such that the entire bottom of the hourglass could be filled without any visible perception of change in the top. Because it's not zero-sum. You're not pulling one sand from the top into the bottom. There's a limitless source of sand. This hourglass is sitting underneath the beach. And it's just pouring in the possibilities, the miraculous. Jesus performs a miracle here of, of super abundance. And Jesus himself is this connecting point. It's when Jesus is putting his hand in the basket. It's when we are being faithful to Jesus. It's when we are receiving from Jesus that all of our fears of there not being enough get overshadowed by the miraculous receiving of more than enough. Everyone feeds. Everyone is satisfied. And still there are baskets left over. Jesus is the connecting point in a very literal sense. So he will go on in, in kind of a monologue discourse later in chapter 6, as he does after most of the signs, to kind of explicate it and deal with um, some resistance from the Jewish leaders. And they'll go on and say, Look, I'm physically, actually, the bread of life. God has been reaching into his basket and pulling out me and giving it to you. And when you receive this bread, you eat and are satisfied, and you find out there's actually no bottom. It's like limitless shrimp. Red lobster. I am the bread of life, cooked and cut and served to you from the hands of God, that you might eat and be satisfied, that you might receive life from me. And it's a very literal thing for Jesus. It's not just like a spiritual truth that it's through Jesus that we receive the gifts of heaven. It's actually literally through Jesus of Nazareth, this first century Jewish man. It's through his body. It's through his blood. Not as a metaphor, his actual body and his actual blood that we receive these gifts from God, that we're able to trust God for the abundance that we're promised. Flip with me to chapter 6, verse 53. Later on in the chapter, it's kind of the conclusion for Jesus, what he's getting at. Here with this sign. He's kind of been talking about himself being the living bread that comes from heaven. People who eat this bread will live forever. And then in verse 52, actually, the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? They understand what Jesus is saying. He's actually talking about human flesh. And they're like, look, we are good Jews, and beyond that, we're just human beings. We're not cannibals. We're definitely not going to start eating flesh. We're not going to start eating you. Jesus said to them in verse 53, 53, Truly, truly, amen, amen. This This is bedrock truth. You can bank on this. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And this rightly offends some people. If I came to you next Sunday, and I said the only way, you to receive life, eternal life, it's for you to chow down on my body, get to work on my flesh, get some glasses together, fill them up with my blood, and drink them. You would probably, one, be a little disgusted, and then two, you'd be like, this guy has lost it. What is he talking about? But he's such a great pastor, we'll keep him there anyways. I'm assuming that's how it would go, something like that. Jesus, though, doubles down on this idea in verse 54. I want you to see this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. Notice in the ESV, it changes the English word from eat the flesh to feeds on my flesh. That actually um, is because there's a change in the Greek on the verbs. It gets a little more graphic. The verb to eat actually changes to what in other Greek literature it's used to to reference animals eating. So the, the sense, the connotation here is like a gnawing, a tearing off. A chewing enthusiastically, and yes, your faces are telling me you're understanding it. That's graphic, it's intense. Her feeds on my flesh and drinks as my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. You only thought you were drinking real food or eating real food and, and drinking real drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is how we participate with Jesus. This is how we receive his life. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, this is the pathway to life, real life, eternal life, resurrected life. It's through my body and my blood. And he means this as literally as he can possibly mean this. The rawness of it, the graphic nature of it, makes us kind of queasy and, and, and quick to look for the spiritual or the symbolic. But Jesus lives this out. It's actually through his flesh given on the cross and the blood poured out during his crucifixion, that we receive life. This is the most intense, clear, powerful point where God comes into contact with humanity and shares his life with those who are thirsty and hungry, with those who want to receive. It's not a symbolic death. It's a literal, physical death. It's really... Jesus of Nazareth's body and blood that provides us salvation. And then here in this text, both in the psalm we read and later on in chapter 6, there are lots of allusions to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper. And classically, the Lord's Supper is where we continue to eat and drink Jesus. This is how we continue to participate, have foretaste in his ultimate gift of his crucifixion, his sacrifice for us. In fact, when Jesus in the miracle takes the bread and hands it out, this resembles formulas in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about the Eucharist, the institution of the Eucharist. He takes the bread, he gives thanks for it, he distributes it to his disciples. Jesus compares himself here to the manna that comes from heaven, John clues us into this comparison early on by letting us know this is at the Passover. The Passover is the the celebration of the Jews um, for the deliverance, the liberation, freedom that God gave them from the Egyptians through the Exodus. And also it's a celebration of his sustaining love for them. The fact that they were on the wilderness, in the wilderness, wandering around, had no food, and God miraculously provided for them day after day after day with manna from heaven. Now the Israelites were grumbling and complaining. They had their calculators out like Philip. Like, there's no food around us. Can any of us make food? No? Okay. And we're going to starve. But you can't calculate that there would be this miraculous bread that comes down from heaven. And that would keep us alive. Jesus is both like that bread and unlike that bread. In significant ways. The manna that came down from heaven, you actually couldn't store up for like tomorrow. You only took as much as you needed for that day, and if you had any more than that, it would actually spoil. It would go bad on you, it would be unedible. Jesus, though, performs this miracle, gives of himself at the cross, and it never runs out. He says, Take the baskets, let's not lose what's still left there. This will continue over to the next day, to our daily lives. The manna in heaven that came down for the Israelites was eaten and enjoyed, but they still died. But Jesus is the bread of life from heaven, God's gift to humanity. Those who eat will not die. Jesus is the bread of life given to us from God. He is the point where we receive blessing upon blessing, where our expectations and preparations about our lives in the world are blown apart. It's through his death on the cross, his flesh given, his blood spilt, that the entire world is able to receive life and then eating and drinking that blood is a tradition that was carried on from right away in the church. Jesus himself starts this up. He says, when you eat this bread, you eat my body. When you drink this wine, you drink myself. There's this, this feast aspect to it, this, this eating, but not just eating, really eating, digging into, tearing it apart. It's present right away at the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Communion. The early church ate an entire meal. They were satisfied. There was more left over. They drank until they were satisfied, and there was more still left over. In lots of ways, our, our paradigm of scarcity has influenced how we even practice the Lord's Supper. So it gets down to like a, maybe a piece of bread and a sip, juice or wine. Or in kind of more extreme cases, it's just like a tiny little wafer—you can barely taste it. Just a tiny little shot glass of juice. I'm predicting right now that in not too long, they won't even—it'll just be like a, they'll put bread up on the screen behind them. They'll be like, "Take a breath, appreciate this, and go on." Now, what we do as Christians, similar to Philip, is we go, "Okay, we get to partake in Jesus' body and blood at the table." Let's get our calculators out. How does that work? Let's explore this scientifically. Imagining, again, that our world's a closed system. The only way we can observe and feel and think about is possible. And so we quickly get to work missing the point and come up with all different theories that we bigger on that may or may not be interesting about what's actually happening at the table but miss the actual point of what's happening at the table. So we argue over, well, maybe in a way we can't understand, this actually does become like very literally the flesh of an ancient man and his blood. Or we think, well, perhaps the, the accents say the same, the characteristics on the outside, but just the substance inside changes. So it still feels and tastes like bread and looks and tastes like wine or juice but the more like substantial element, the kind of essence of it inside of these properties has changed. Or some say it's just symbolic, just another symbol, another way to remember what Jesus has done for us. No different, really, no better or worse than any other thing that might remind us about Jesus. This is why in churches that take a, a very um, strict kind of symbolic view of communion, they don't do it much. Because they do it every week. They can do it in preaching. They can do it in worship. You can do it by having a cross on your wall, or listening to songs on your way to work. I think most, perhaps the most faithful tradition in talking about the Eucharist and how we are privileged, we're invited, we get to feed and drink of that which provides life and real life. It's the tradition that says it's real. It's not a symbol It's more important than other things we might do. But it's mysterious. We can't calculate it. Even if we were, we'd still be missing the point. The point is that in a miraculous way, Jesus was given to us. Made flesh from heaven. In a miraculous way, his death provides cover and protection and salvation for lots of people. And in that same miraculous way at the table, we're able to continue to tap into his love for us, his gift for us. And the reality that our five loaves and two fishes, seen properly, are just enough for 10, 12, 15,000 people. Because we've grasped beauty of the infinite. Will you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this morning, this time of worship. We pray that you would indeed expand our imaginations, that in every situation we would see the real possibilities that come through your Son, that we would see the beauty, the glory of your fullness come into the world. In every situation we might see that there are actually limitless resources. There's enough to go around and there'll be more after that. Help us to tap into that, to believe into that, to live into that in a real and sustaining way. Help us to never seek life outside of Jesus' death and resurrection. And remind us of the childlike, mysterious joy we get to participate in as we're invited to the table. Like children, we come simply expecting your promise to be true, perhaps unaware of how it works, perhaps not interested in debating the specifics with other people, just interested and the promise that there we would find you. And when we find you, we find life, life eternal. We find resurrection. We find endless possibilities of abundance and blessing. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his body and blood. Thank you for our access to him and by him to you and, and life itself. We pray all these things in the name of the Father,